What Makes a Killer contains graphic details of sexual assault and violence and is not intended for all audiences. Listener discretion is strongly advised. It's Saturday night, September 12, 2015, in East London. 25-year-old Jack Taylor is out at the Trades Hall Club in Dagenham. He's been chatting with a man on the mobile dating app Grinder. After a few messages, they agree to meet up. In the early morning hours, Jack calls a taxi and heads over to the man's apartment in Barking. Jack lives with his family, so they notice when he doesn't return home. So we was all worried. We'd always hear from Jack. He'd always let my mum and dad know if he wasn't coming home or, and he hadn't. They report him missing. Two days later, the family received the news they have been dreading. Jack's body has been discovered in the graveyard of St. Margaret's Church in East London, propped up against the wall. Near the body, the police find drug paraphernalia, including a small bottle containing the party drug GHB. He has died from an overdose. However, Jack's family is suspicious. Jack was very anti-drugs, so that didn't make sense. You just get this gut feeling that something's not right. And their suspicions were right. An active serial killer is at large, luring men to their deaths using online dating sites. Young men in their 20s had been murdered in East London and their bodies had been found in unexplained circumstances all within a few hundred yards of each other. This is What Makes a Killer, a 12-part series that chronicles the lives and crimes of the world's most notorious killers. I'm your host, Jennifer Natoso. In every episode, we'll trace a killer's origins, examine their behavior, and follow their path to bloodshed. In this episode, we'll discuss Stephen Port, the Grinder Killer. Stephen Port was born in Southend, England, in 1975. When he was one, his family moved to Dagenham in Essex. Criminologist Dr. Elizabeth Yardley says that as a child, Port was an introvert and had trouble connecting with others. He seems to have come from quite an average working-class background, which was, to all intents and purposes, relatively normal from the outside. He seems to be a boy who was quite quiet. He was quite awkward. Um, He wasn't somebody who was a great conversationalist. And it's been said that when he was at school, some people thought that he was deaf because he was that detached and, and that disengaged from other people. So he's always been very insular and very introverted. After graduating from high school, Port briefly attended art school, but he dropped out because his family couldn't afford tuition. So he went on and and trained to be a chef. So I think he's always got that sense of frustration and that sense of entitlement. Um, I think he, he has this idea that I have this talent, I have this skill, I should be able to develop that, and I'm not able to because of other people. In 2005, at the age of 30, 
Port moved out of his family home and into an apartment in nearby Barking, East London. One of his new neighbors was Ryan Edwards. Uh, and as a young gay man myself, I didn't know anyone gay in the, in the local area. So it didn't take me long, really, to introduce myself to him. He, he was a very tall man, sort of a towering physical presence. Um, and he actually walked with a, almost like a bit of a lumber stroke lurch. He was very much a man of few words. So when he used to talk to me, he often didn't give eye contact. He would bow his head and he would often give one or two word answers. Ryan quickly picked up on his neighbor's strange behavior. I think there was something stunted about Stephen's mental development. I remember something a bit peculiar. I was um, going to host a party. I was just putting some rubbish out and there was a toy truck there. And I thought, Stephen will love that. Um, and I was with a friend at the time. I said, you can't give a grown man a toy truck. And I was like, yeah, but I, you know, from what I knew of Stephen, I think he'd really like it. Um, so at the party, I gave him the toy truck. And lo and behold, he was absolutely overjoyed with it. He then sat cross-legged on the floor and started pushing the toy truck up and down. He was obviously in his complete own world while the party was going on around him. Port's awkward manner made it difficult for him to meet men in person. Author Jeffrey Wansel says that he turned to online dating, where he felt more comfortable. This was his form of communication. He wasn't a man, for example, to go out to the pub or to the bar at night. This was a man who lived in his own fantasy, created with the help of his internet connection. I think Stephen Port was somebody who did lack those basic social skills. So I think he'd find social media incredibly attractive. He's able to spend time thinking about the types of things to say on his profile. And he'd have real trouble meeting people in a face-to-face -face situation, but the internet removes a lot of that. Port created several accounts across many different sites, but many of his profiles were fabricated. He was able to create new identities for himself. He claimed to have been in the military. He claimed to have graduated from Oxford University. Um, at other times, he'd claim that he was a special needs teacher. And, and that's the thing about social media. It enables us to present a whole range of, of different identities to people. You can be whatever you want to be. Lying. It seemed to work in Port's favor. Stephen's um, rate of going through and meeting new guys was prolific. So um, it was quite, you know, not unusual that it would be a new guy um, every every day. Even on the first time he'd met them, he would then uh, announce to me via text message normally that, you know, I've got a new boyfriend, come around and meet my new boyfriend. He would often use pictures that were taken many years ago. He doesn't feel that the real Stephen Port is actually enough. To, to actually get the attention of others and, and to, to have others interested in him. Port may have had another reason for posting young pictures of himself. He was only interested in people that were younger than him. There's a really clear reason for that, because here we've got somebody who really has a lot of problems relating to people of his own age. So I think he's always going to be attracted towards people who look younger, because he feels like he's, he's more in control. He was a kind of praying mantis figure, quite thin, pale-faced, uncomfortable in 
lots of company, much happier when he was alone with young men. He had an appetite for vulnerable young men, certainly younger than 25. And he was interested in control. It's about the power. And for Port, it was all about power. And Port's neighbor, Ryan, soon learned how controlling he really was. Stephen would quite often deposit the the boyfriend in my company. And so I would end up getting to know these guys. Um, And they they really had a good word to say about Stephen. They would often say that um, he was um, mentally abusing them. He was very argumentative, very manipulative, very controlling. But what was strange, really, is that if Stephen was such an awful person, they were still sticking around. So, again, was there some sort of control that Stephen was exhibiting to make these guys, you know, not run for the hills? Along with his volatile relationships, Port had also become immersed in a world of drug-fueled sex parties. Ryan Edwards remembers Port bringing him into his home to give him a glimpse into his wild lifestyle. He led me through to the kitchen uh, and the living room, and uh, I was absolutely taken aback when I looked at the coffee table, and the whole circumference was filled up with a clear plastic box. And in that container were lots and lots and lots of vials of clear liquid and bags of white powder. I obviously quickly realised that this is a huge amount of drugs, so then that's when I pretty much took a step back. Um, and that was one of the last times I actually went round Stephen's flat. Stephen Port's violent behaviour would only intensify as his appetite for young men and drug abuse would spiral out of control. He was living alone in Barking, East London, and his internet search history was becoming more and more perverse. On June 15, 2014, Port contacted 23-year-old fashion student Anthony Walgate through a male escort site. He offered to pay Anthony £800 to spend the night, and they agreed to meet two days later. As a precaution, Anthony texted friends about the arrangement. But two days later, the police received an anonymous emergency call from Stephen Port himself. Emergency ambulance. What's the address of the emergency? Cook Street. There's a young boy. Look at his caps outside. Outside of which number? 4758, I think. What area? Parking. 47, Cook Street. Yeah. It looks like you've collapsed or had a seizure or something. You're just always just drunk. When the paramedics arrived, Anthony was found slumped against a wall outside of Port's apartment. Beside him was his bag, which contained a bottle of the party drug, GHB. He had died of an overdose. Walgate had turned up at his flat, and there is no doubt that he was rapidly subdued with the use of GHB and other drugs. Now, there is an argument which suggests that perhaps something went just a bit too far with, as far as Walgate was concerned, and that the drugs had too great an effect. It could be that he got the dose wrong. It could be that... This was something new that he was trying out. We don't know. But what we do know is that Anthony Walgate died 
at Port's hands. Port told the police that he found Anthony outside his apartment on his way home from work. His death wasn't treated as suspicious. It was devastating news for his mother, Sarah Sack. The last time I um, had any contact with Anthony was the 15th of June, because it was my birthday on the 17th of June. And I said to him, I'm going on holiday, I'll see you when I get back, that sort of thing. And of course, I never did get to see him again. It was the um, Sunday before I was due to come home and I turned my phone back on. There was 50-odd missed calls, there was texts, there was hundreds and hundreds of messages coming through that you need to ring home, some, you know, something's happened. So I, I called my son and he had to tell me over the phone that Anthony had been found dead. To be honest, it was just a bit of a blur. It was so fast and... I don't even really remember much about it. It was just, I was just in shock that it could happen. You know, you really don't expect this to happen. You, you go on holiday for your birthday, etc., and then find out one of your children are dead. Sarah approached the police for more information about her son's death. They weren't suspicious, but she was. Anthony was found dead in the street. So I said, well, you know, was he stabbed, shot, beaten? What? No. Nothing, there was not a mark on him, and we don't know why. They'd done a post-mortem the Friday before, and nothing had come up and shown. So I said to him straight away then, something's not right. Anthony's friends told detectives that he had arranged to meet up with a man on the night he disappeared. The police soon realized it was the same person who dialed 999, Stephen Port. On June 26th, Port was arrested his laptop seized, and his DNA taken. It starts to unravel, and, and the police do start to put the, the pieces together and, and figure out that he is connected to this in some way. So Port's story changes, um, he, he continues to, to lie, and I think he's sailing quite close to the wind with this particular case. Port told detectives that Anthony had taken drugs and fallen asleep after they'd had sex. He said he then left the 23-year-old in his apartment and went to work. When he returned, Anthony was asleep. The following morning, he found Anthony dead. Port said he panicked and carried the body outside before calling the police. And the investigators believed him. And I think he feels quite relieved when he gets away with it because I, I, I think that once he was in the police station, once he was being questioned, he probably did think the game was up and I don't think he could quite believe his luck when he walked away from it. On June 26th, police charged Port with perverting the course of justice since his account of Anthony's death had changed. A trial date was set for March 2015, but he was immediately released on bail. Human rights campaigner Peter Tatchell was surprised. Astonishingly, they did no further serious probing of Stephen Port, including his searches on his laptop and including his phone records. Those searches might have much earlier on shone a spotlight on Stephen Port as a potential killer. And Port was ready to strike again. Just two months after Anthony Walgate's death, 
report was back on Grinder. He began messaging 22-year-old Gabriel Cavari. On August 23rd, Gabriel moved in with Port. He seemed like a very nice guy, very um, articulate, intelligent, well-spoken, um, who had um, a passion for art, and, and he was an aspi- very much an aspiring artist. One day, Ryan invited the couple over for coffee. So um, Stephen brings him over, and then um, when Stephen goes to the toilet, um, Gabriel then says to me um, in sort of hushed tones, Ryan, Stephen is not the man you think he is. He is a bad man. And it didn't take me long to realise that Gabriel was not happy living with Stephen. Dr Yardley believes Port felt threatened by Gabriel. Here is a young man who is everything that Stephen Port isn't. He's somebody who's ambitious. He's somebody who's going somewhere in his life. And I think Port will feel incredibly resentful towards him. He was strikingly different to the guys that um, Stephen would normally hang around with. And so for that reason, I was, piqued, he piqued my interest, really. And so I thought, oh, well, actually, I'm going to keep in touch with Gabriel. Um, and so we then started to swap some messages on social media. But all of a sudden, the messages stopped. And so I raised this with Stephen about, you know, why has Gabriel stopped, you know, communicating? Where is he? Um, and then Stephen told me that I'm not sure where Gabriel's gone. He's just disappeared. Um, and then it was it changed after a few days to uh, Gabriel's um, met up and, and gone out with a, an army guy, and then changed again to um, actually uh, I'm worried about Gabriel's safety. And then it was about a week after that that I, I got this really um, eerie message from Stephen, a long, long message saying, and I've got some really sad news, but I've heard from Gabriel's um, friend that he's gone back home and he picked up a mysterious illness and has died. On August 28, 2014, just five days after he moved into Port's apartment, Gabriel Cavari was found dead. A woman walking her dog in the graveyard of St. Margaret's Church found his body propped up against a wall. It appeared that Gabriel Cavari had died of a drug overdose. But the shocking reality was that Stephen Port had drugged and killed him, just as he had done with Anthony Walgate two months prior. Port had now killed two men, and his urges were only intensifying. In less than a month another man would be dead. While still out on bail, Port killed for a third time. On September 18th, he contacted 21-year-old chef Daniel Whitworth through an online gay dating site, and the two decided to meet. Two days later, Daniel was found dead. His body was discovered in the graveyard at St. Margaret's Church, in the same spot as Port's second victim, Gabriel Cavari, by the exact same dog walker, Barbara Denham. I've come through and I've seen somebody else, a a different boy, sitting in exactly the same position, leaning up against the exact same wall. And I'm thinking to myself, please, God, no, please, not another one. The news of Daniel's death reached the front door of his stepmother, Mandy Pearson. I opened the door to the police, 
who immediately removed their hats. And that was when time stood still for me, really. I thought they, they're not here with good news. They just are not here with good news. I really don't recall what I actually said next. I, I cried. And so then one of us asked how. And they did lower their heads and say, well, it looks like he took his own life. Mandy was heartbroken. She made a memory box for Daniel. Photos, birthday cards, all kinds of keepsakes. It's got a lot of things in there, just things that I'm still finding. Anything that I come across um, that reminds me of him even, I'll just put it in there. Adam, um, Daniel's father, really did adore his boy. You know, he was going places. And um, Daniel's dad was very proud of that, extremely proud of that. Just like his other two victims, Port had poisoned Daniel with a fatal amount of GHB. He then placed his body in the same place as Gabriel Cavari's. In a bizarre move to try and evade capture, Port then wrote and planted a fake suicide note which claimed that Daniel had killed Gabriel just three weeks earlier. When Daniel's family saw the note, they found it strange. Adam and I actually managed to see the letter in its entirety. There wasn't a thing in that letter that spoke to us about Daniel. Um, There were no names. Um, He was talking in the wrong kind of context. It was like... um, I didn't tell my family where I was going. Well, you wouldn't say that to your family. And at that point, I, I said, who, who is this addressed to? Because it's not addressed to us, is it? And something else in the letter aroused Mandy's suspicions. There was, don't blame the guy I was with last night, it was only sex. and. Obviously, the first question then was who? Who is this man? The fact that Stephen Port wrote the fake suicide note, it it does seem completely incredible, doesn't it? But by this point, he thinks he's invincible because he's gotten away with murder before. So he wants to be careful that he doesn't get caught again. And I think because he is quite childlike, because he is quite immature, he doesn't see how absolutely incredulous this should appear to be. News of the death of the three young gay men began to spread through the LGBTQ community. A friend of Gabriel Cavari, John Pape, approached human rights campaigner Peter Tatchell. I was immediately shocked that the police had issued no public appeal and there seemed to be no ongoing investigation. Um, that prompted me to ask John Pape to contact Gallup, Uh, the police monitoring group, and Pink News, the main gay website. Um, I asked him to try and get them to press the police for answers. Um, 
both Gallup and Pink News did go to the police, but were reassured that there was nothing suspicious or unusual about the deaths. Port had managed to evade capture for a third time. However, his killing spree was about to be put on a temporary hold. On March 23, 2015, Port pleaded guilty to perverting the course of justice during the investigation into Anthony Walgate's death. He was sentenced to eight months in prison. He served just over two of them. On June 4th, he was released. Port was free to kill again. I never really understood the circumstances at the time of why he was in prison, but I did ask him, obviously, when he got out via text message, what was that all about? You know, why, why were you in prison for, you know, for a couple of months? And um, eerily, he said to me on text message, it was a 90-second mistake, Ryan, that cost me several months of my life in prison. And I never really understood what he meant by that. But looking back, it's kind of a bit chilling. Just three months after being released from prison, Port struck once more. On September 14th, the body of 25-year-old forklift driver Jack Taylor was found in the same churchyard as Gabriel Cavari and Daniel Whitworth. I think the graveyard became a kind of favourite disposal site for him because it served two purposes. It got the bodies out of the way, but it also created a bit of a narrative um, for anybody coming across these individuals. This graveyard was a place where often homeless people, people who were down on their luck, would hang out, and that creates a little bit of a story in the beginning when the bodies are discovered. Donna Taylor, one of Jack's sisters, remembers the day the family received the fateful news. Mum had called me to say that Jack still wasn't home. And then all of a sudden a a police car pulled up outside. And then the next thing she said that the officers were coming towards our door. And all I've heard is, are you Jack's mum and dad? And obviously they said, yeah. And obviously Jack's dead. And you just heard mum scream. Well, obviously, you know what that scream is. Sisters Donna and Jen Taylor began to question the circumstances surrounding Jack's death. We know Jack, obviously, and Jack's very particular. He didn't like dark, didn't like it at all, first off. Um, Second of all, Jack wouldn't just walk in a park area let alone a cemetery or anything like that. You know, he, he wouldn't. And it doesn't make sense to leave the house at, like, half two in the morning, three o'clock in the morning, to go and sit over a park. That doesn't yeah. even make sense. Determined to find out more, the Taylor family asked to see the CCTV footage of Jack's last known movements. It showed him walking with a tall, blonde stranger. So we found out two weeks later that they'd seen CCTV footage of Jack meeting a man at Barking Station, which we thought was very bizarre, like very strange. Um, at that time in the morning as well, we just mm. thought, well, who's this man? In October 2015, the police released the images to the public. A few days later, the mysterious man in the footage was identified as Stephen Port. In the end, 
It was the determination of Jack Taylor's family to pursue the police that eventually led them to take Port seriously. I believe had that not happened, Port might well have got away or got away with it. On October 15th, Port was arrested on suspicion of murdering all four young men. The police had a serial killer in custody, one that had previously slipped through their fingers. They had originally believed that the deaths were all self-administered drug overdoses. Detectives searching Port's apartment had seized his laptop and mobile phone, but this time they would actually inspect these items. While browsing Port's recent search history, detectives found incriminating evidence, including the phrase, boy drug raped. Worse, they also discovered that Port's hard drive contained videos of him having sex with unconscious men. Under questioning, Port admitted that he had met his third victim, Daniel Whitworth, at a sex party, but he knew nothing about his death. He also claimed that he hadn't administered drugs to anyone and denied killing the four young men. He's quite well-spoken. He appears to be quite reserved. I think what we're seeing here is a bit of a veneer that, that he's crafted to present to the rest of the world. You wouldn't think that this is the type of person who could do this kind of thing. But the police weren't falling for it this time. They could link Port to all four of the victims. On October 18, 2015, Port was arrested and charged with the murders of Anthony Walgate, Gabriel Cavari, Jack Taylor, and Daniel Whitworth. But this was little solace to the victims' families. I was told via the phone, the liaison officer that we had previously, um, he phoned with the opening line of, don't build your hopes up, but we've arrested someone. To try and explain to you how that was, the surreal situation that we were in, also included the emotion of comfort because we thought he wasn't in that dark place, he didn't take his own life, he wasn't angry with any of us, he wasn't upset, he wasn't in this awful place where we couldn't reach him, where he didn't come to us, where he... And for that split second, you're comforted by the fact that your son has been murdered, which is, which is bizarre. It's bizarre. We had a sigh of relief, and that was, that was quickly followed by anger. It was just incredible. We didn't know where to go from there. The day I actually got the phone call to say that they'd arrested him for the four murders, I actually, I didn't even feel glad. I'd, I felt like I'd been shot, to be quite honest. Straight pain to my chest and I just burst into tears. It was awful. Couldn't believe it. It's, it's like, there's one thing putting everything together, what me and Jen did, and believing that we are right, that somebody has done something to Jack. But when you're told it, and it becomes official, 
Um, it's, it's, it's awful. It is awful. And it wasn't long before the story of the murders hit the headlines. A friend of mine had sent me a link to a news article online. Um, and I clicked on it and uh, kind of like an, an icy dread sort of went over my body. And I sat bolt up, upright in bed where it was like local man Stephen Port um, arrested on suspicion of four murders. And then I looked through the names and I saw Gabriel being one of them. As the story broke, more men came forward claiming that they too had been drugged and sexually assaulted at Port's apartment after meeting him online. I think there was a very clear reason why Paul chose to use GHB. I think that he was tapping into to the stigma and, and the, the lifestyle or the, the perceived lifestyle of young gay men. I think he, he realised that, that, you know, if this does go too far, if somebody does have, have too much and, and they don't survive, then I'm going to be able to present it in a particular way that people aren't going to ask questions. He was a very ugly person inside and out. Um, a sad, lonely, bald old man. And I don't think he's very bright. And he literally thought he was God, that he could just get away with it. The single most shocking thing about Stephen Port is that a monster can prey on innocent young men in absolutely plain sight in the East End of London in 2015 Peter Tatchell believes all the deaths could have been avoided if communication between the authorities and the public was improved. One of the problems the gay community and the police face is that many crimes linked to dating apps are not reported. Uh, there is, in general, a very significant underreporting of homophobic hate crime, but there appears to be a particular underreporting of crimes linked to Grindr and other social dating apps. When his trial began at the Old Bailey Criminal Court on October 5th, 2016, Port was faced with 29 separate charges of rape, sexual assault, administering a substance with intent, and murder. The 41-year-old pleaded not guilty this meant the family of the victims would have to face the man responsible for killing their loved ones. Mandy Pearson remembers walking into the courtroom. I knew I was going to look at him. Um, he was up there behind glass, and he was looking down when we came in. I wanted Stephen Port to give me some eye contact. That, that was a need in me. I was just looking for any, any small sign of human emotion from this thing, this thing with two arms and two legs that was apparently human. I wanted something from his eyes. And I never got that. I, I didn't, I didn't get that. For four weeks, the jury was presented with evidence to prove that Port was the killer. Investigators had found his DNA on Gabriel Cavari's sunglasses and Daniel Whitworth's clothes. Handwriting experts also confirmed that Daniel didn't write the suicide note found alongside him. 
Ryan Edwards testified against his former neighbor during the trial. So I did my evidence and as I was leaving, I couldn't help but kind of quickly glance at Stephen because I had to walk quite near past him as I, as I was leaving. Um, and chillingly, he kind of gave me a, a crooked half smile, um, almost like a mischievous grin that a child would give when they've been caught out doing something they know is wrong. And it, it, that was eerie. On November 25th, 2016, the jury convicted Port of a total of 22 offenses against 11 men, including the four murders, four rapes, four sexual assaults, and 10 counts of administering a substance with intent. Mr. Justice Openshaw gave Stephen Port a life sentence. He was immediately sent to Belmarsh Prison. He will never be released. The Taylor family outside the courthouse after the trial. That sick, twisted scumbag will never be able to hurt or destroy anyone else's family or life. Our Jack can finally rest in peace. We will always be completely heartbroken as a family. Since Port's incarceration, police are re-examining as many as 58 unexplained deaths involving the drug GHB. There are almost certainly many, many more young men who were assaulted one way or another by Stephen Port. The only thing we can be grateful for is that Port was eventually stopped. He was, in every respect, a most terrifying figure. In October 2016, the Independent Police Complaints Commission launched its own investigation into 17 officers who handled the response to the four deaths in Port's case. The investigation continues. Despite the internal police review and Port's incarceration, nothing can bring back the four young men that lost their lives. We've got to make room for this to run parallel with a life that... I'm not going to use the word destroyed because he's taken our boy and he's not taken any more. We do reminisce. We do reminisce about Daniel and, you know, some of the things we did when we were out and about. And, and you know, that, that's becoming easier to do. No, it still isn't getting easier over time. He used to say, he, he, from being early teens, he called me Cesar. He never called me ma'am. And he always used to say, you wait, Cesar, one day I'll be famous. Everybody will be talking about me. Which they are, but for, obviously for the wrong reasons. We haven't had time to go, have we? No. Uh, we still have days now where we'll just get up as what we call a normal day and we don't feel like anything's normal anymore, do we? But a normal day and all of a sudden you sit there and you think, oh my God, like... He's not here. Jack's not here. And then you have another day where you actually think, Jack was murdered. Watching your mum and dad every day, every single day. Um, Fall down and there's nothing you can do about it. Because, you know, like everybody in, in, in the world, if... Your mum and dad are upset or, you know, something's wrong. You try and fix it and there's nothing we can do. And that, that is hard, very hard. You know, watching the fact that they fell apart, they've aged. Um, 
the people we've always known are not are not the same people anymore. That is hard. It's hard for all of us, ain't it? Yeah. What Makes a Killer is an Audio Boom original series in production with Woodcut Media and hosted by me, Jennifer Natoso. This series is produced by Audio Boom's Casey Georgie, Rachel Jacobs, Blair Payton, Karen Bevan, and by Nick Maverdeckis for Woodcut. Original music by Ben Kregi and Kai Angle. Recorded by Adam Garner at Listen Up Studios in Atlanta. Executive producers for Woodcut are Kate Beale and Janelle Patel, and for Audio Boom are Brendan Regan and Stuart Last. A special thanks to the survivors, friends, and families of victims willing to share their stories. If you or someone you know is a victim of sexual assault, please reach out for help. You can contact the National Sexual Assault Hotline by calling 1-800-656-HOPE or 1-800-656-4673. You can also visit their website at rain.org. That's R-A-I-N-N dot O-R-G. If you haven't already, don't forget to follow us on Spotify or subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorite shows. If you have some time, please leave us a review. Thank you. On next week's episode of What Makes a Killer. On September 29, 2006, police in Glasgow made a horrific discovery under the floor of a local church. The body of 23-year-old student Angelica Kluke, who had been missing for almost a week. She was put under there. He stabbed her and he raped her. He left her dead. The last person seen with Angelica was 60-year-old church handyman Peter Tobin, a man with a history of violent sexual abuse. Tobin defies even my imagination. There is something about him that sends a shiver down my spine every time I think about him.